Hey folks, welcome to the show. Um, I met up with Mark Anthony Wyatt earlier um, from the Cuckoo Town podcast and we decided to do a little collaboration all about the gunpowder plot of 1605. So um, we covered loads of it really, um, the sort of political conditions, the religious tension that had been boiling over since the Reformation. Who were the plotters? What were their motives? Um, how was the plot executed? How were they discovered? And the aftermath and lots of the little nuggets associated with the plot and the characters surrounding the plot uh, sort of on the edges. So um, it was good fun, good chat. I hope you enjoy it. Um, oh, if it gets a good response, maybe we'll do more more of these sort of, uh, sort of deeper dive videos and podcasts. So... Um, Check out the links in the show notes, as always. Uh, you'll find a link to our show and Mark's show there. And uh, see you next time. Okay. Be lucky. <laughs> oh, yeah, so, so we were going to chat about the origins of Guy Fawkes Night, Bonfire Night. That's right. I mean, you, you suggested that maybe it's, it's something yeah. that's not particularly... Uh, well known in the states. That's right. Yeah, I know. I know that for a fact because um, although there are some areas which do know about it, I, I believe that originally the English settlers that came over in the sort of sixteen hundreds, they basically took that, or the, the the Protestants took it with them. But it was it was sort of um, I, I think it was outlawed actually. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, it would it would make sense back in those times, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, the American people I know, apart from Janice, they know very very little, if if nothing at all. And I remember when Janice first looked into it, she basically thought it was all a religious thing. Well, it was, it is, as we know, but we when we were growing up, and I, I don't know if it was the same with you. I mean, are, are you? Well, you don't have to answer this, but are you a Catholic? I was raised Catholic, so I'm, I'm probably yeah. technically a lapsed Catholic. Yeah. So, so, but you still celebrated Bonfire Night. Yeah. 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 That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. And that, and that's exactly how I feel because when we were young, I had very, very little idea about anything like that. It was just a fun night where you burnt an effigy. We didn't really know who Guy Fawkes was. Mm. Um, and I actually found out that it was at least 200 years before they put Guy Fawkes yeah. on the bonfires. That's right. It, it was the Pope. <laughs> yeah, it was the Pope, an effigy yeah. of the Pope, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it seems outrageous now, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, when we were growing up, it was all about fireworks and treacle and making a guy and, you know, right. you would, it, there was something in the air. I don't know whether it was the smoke and all the fumes yeah. that we were putting out, but there was, yeah. it, would, it was like a mist would descend yes. on the country from the fireworks yeah. and the bonfires. There was a certain atmosphere, and yes. you can still remember, like, the smells and the senses. And Yeah, I do, yeah. You would have, like, yeah. toffee apples or treacle or, and go and stand around a bonfire, usually, like, big communal bonfires by the time I was growing yes. up. Yes, yeah. People didn't really have 
well, we didn't have a, enough room. We didn't have a garden, really, where you could have a, a right. proper bonfire. But people, places right. would set up, like schools would have a bonfire night and they'd raise money for at school. Yes, or uh, yeah. the local rugby club used to put on a big do and they'd yeah. have a big bonfire and a firework display and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's a, yeah. it's a huge deal in the UK every year. Yeah, we, we sort of caught it at a time of sort of transition, really, because... In, in the 70s, well, in the 60s, it was still a big thing. And I can remember looking up and uh, we, we lived in a country village just outside Guildford in southeast England, just for those listening in America and um, or anywhere. And behind our house, although we, we lived in a council house, but those council, I mean, it's another story, but when Thatcher get, brought in this right to buy, those houses which we grew up in, these tiny council houses but they're very nice they're very well built houses they had like tile hung you know like red red tiles halfway down the house they're like very pretty yeah. although we didn't see it that way at the time <laughs> but they were selling those for like well i don't know what they are now but they were up to like sort of five hundred thousand a few a few years ago wow. and it was a council house we had it as a council house anyway behind that house there was a, around about four miles of countryside. So we had a, a river, a, a field, then this massive woods. So you, you can guess where we got all our wood from. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we we would be collecting wood from probably a month, six weeks before. And just about everything went on those fires, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. There was there was a big one in the field behind us, um, which some older lads had built. Well, they did it every year. And it was hollowed out. So it was just like this massive um, sort of shelter. And it had sort of chairs shoved on the side of it, like old chairs and yeah. things. And then the guy was sat on top of it. I don't know who put the guy on. I don't know how I did that. Because it was about, I don't know, 25, 30 foot high. So, um, yeah, that's how, and looking up and down the road on the night, you could see fires like mm. every other garden. Wow. And obviously fireworks and so on. And that, in fact, if you listen to that little conversation I sent you with an old friend, I, I only learned this the other day. <laughs> we used to see these fireworks coming up behind the woods, right? We couldn't see over the woods. And I can remember my dad's when we used to say, "Oh, where are the fireworks?" He said, "Oh, it's over the over the farm at the back." But it never really clicked until my friend the other day said, "Did you used to go to the big bonfire up East Shelford Lane?" <laughs> and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> and it, and it's silly, really. I mean, I should have realised it, but but he obviously had contacts with those people, which we didn't. Right. And he said, oh, it was great. <laughs> oh, you missed out. I missed out. All those years. <laughs> I used to see the fireworks, you know, mm. coming up above the trees. But, yeah, we, we had some fun with it. Yeah. Anyway, if you want to get back to the history, because I'm sure you're... Yeah, we can do, if you like. I mean, the, the, the big thing with this is where do you start? Yeah. Do you start I, with the plot itself and the springing of the plot and work your way back? I would go a little bit further back. Do you start with uh, Elizabeth Sets Communication then? Yeah. 
That's then, probably a good um, place to start. Otherwise, you end up going back to the Reformation and Henry VIII, and we'll be we'll be here till tomorrow. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. You're probably a lot better informed about the actual history. I, all I know is that before the event, sort of like, you know, 30, 40 years or whatever, the the because as we know, the, there was like this um, ongoing sort of feud, if you like, between the Catholics and the and what would, what would well, they were Protestants by that time, weren't they? Yeah. So they were sort of in and out of power. And one, and I, I thought it was, um, you know, look, look at what the English state did to those so-called terrorists, right? Um, and then go back. They, they weren't the first. I mean, it was like the Catholics had been doing that to them. Yeah. So it wasn't like the first, the first blood or anything. It was like they'd been doing it to them already. Yeah. Um, it, it, we're dealing with the aftermath of the Reformation that, that goes on. Right. It's amazing. It's like one of these butterfly effects of history where you have a situation, what would in normal circumstances be a very normal, everyday situation. A man um, and his wife, they can't get pregnant. And under right. normal, everyday circumstances, that's just one of these things that happens in life sometimes. But, yeah. when, but when the man is Henry VIII... And the right. woman is Catherine of Aragon. Right. Their inability to sire an heir causes right. hundreds of years of religious tension and human suffering and political chaos across the entire continent. <laughs> yeah, do you know I've never really thought of that before? <laughs> it's it's insane. It's mental. It, it is. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's, yeah. that's the seeds of it, isn't it? It goes back to the yes. Reformation, and like you mentioned about the Catholics yeah. giving it to the Protestants. So after um, Henry's young son Edward, he dies. I think at the age of fifteen, and uh, Bloody Mary comes to the throne, and she's a staunch Catholic. Right. And right. she, and you know she's burning. Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah. Uh, no, a Bloody Mary. Oh right, Bloody Didn't Mary, Her, uh, um, Henry VIII's daughter. Oh right, okay. Bloody Mary. She has about five years on the throne, and she's a staunch Catholic, and she's burning Protestants at the stake. Right, and then and then she dies from ill health, and that's when Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen, comes. Right, uh, good Queen Bess, they used to call her. Uh huh. And she's Protestant. So then the, the tables turn again. Yes, yeah. And we have all this religious tension. I mentioned she gets excommunicated. This is the big turning point. So mm-hmm. in, in 1570, Elizabeth I gets excommunicated by the Pope. And this puts Catholics in England in a very difficult position because they have the Queen yeah. on one side and right. the Pope on the other. Yes, yeah. Who do you obey? You know, the Pope is telling you one thing, the Queen is telling you the other. Uh-huh. All these laws, anti-Catholic laws start being made, like um, you have to go to church, church service, Protestant right. church services. Um, there's a law she makes where any priest who's uh, trained outside of England is immediately um, classed as treasonous and is hung, drawn and quartered. Oh, my God. And also, if you're caught harbouring a priest... Yeah, yeah. And, and this ties in, they call them the Jesuits, who start coming from Europe. Right. So they're being trained in Rome, they're being trained in Spain, and they're being sent over... Right. ...to Protestant England, these Catholic Jesuit priests. 
and okay. they're often in disguise. So um, the famous case is um, Edmund Campion. Oh, so, I've heard of him, yeah. Well, the school I, high school I went to used to be named after him. He was, he oh, was right. canonised, he was a saint. And um, when will it have been uh, Edmund Campion? I want to say probably 1580, early 1580s, I want to say. Right. We should also say, like, England's at war with Spain as well. Right, yeah. So uh, that starts about 1580. Um, Spain is Catholic. Yes, Elizabeth, course, yeah. Elizabeth and England yeah. are Protestant. We have the failed yeah. invasion attempt of the Spanish Armada yeah. in 1588. And, uh, yeah, um, it was around 1580, I think, when the Jesuits started coming over more consistently. Right. And, and one of the main ones was Edmund Campion, and he, he was renowned as this really great public speaker. And um, he came disguised as a jeweller. Right. And uh, he, he was found in the end and yeah. hung, drawn and quartered. Oh, my God. Martyred. But when these priests would arrive, there was like this network of Catholic houses, well-to-do houses, yeah. who would sort of meet them at, from the boat. Yeah. Harbour them in different houses because the Catholic, they had the hidey holes, didn't they? The priest the holes, priest holes. Yeah, yeah, famously yeah, the priest yeah. holes. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. you need um, a Catholic priest to celebrate the mass. You need right. someone who's trained, who's a a yeah. guy who can do the, the sacraments. The sacraments, yeah. yeah, yeah. Whether it's last rites or communion, the Eucharist, uh-huh. or whatever. So, um, Edmund Campion went to a lot of the houses of the fathers of the gunpowder plot conspirators. Oh, right. So, uh, Robert Catesby's father harboured him. Um, Francis Tresham's father harboured him. Right. I think Thomas yes. Winter's father harboured him as well. Yeah, he had a brother as well, didn't he, Winter? He did, yes. Didn't it, didn't it, weren't they both involved, weren't they? He yeah. joined a bit later. Yeah, he joined the, the plot a bit later. Yeah, the one that really I found quite touching was the, I think it was the servant of one of them who had accidentally stumbled across some information that this plot was in. And a poor lad had no choice. Yeah, Tom Bates, that was. Yeah, Bates, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just what a position to be in. You don't want to find stuff out like that. Heck no, no. Not in those days. <laughs> no, because, I mean, the punishments yeah. are severe. There's oh, um, the famous case. So even if you were harbouring a priest, they had all these laws brought in, and they were they were, uh, they were called recusants, the Catholics who wouldn't abide by the laws. Yes, yeah. and it was um, they would be they pay fines or be in prison. There was, uh, you know, a lot of these conspirators in the gunpowder plot that were very wealthy. And right. they could afford to pay these fines, but others, unfortunately, couldn't do. No, and so the, there's a famous case of uh, Margaret uh, Clitheroe. Right. And she was in York, and she was accused of harbouring a priest, and which she refused to answer the charge. Um, and the punishment for that was to be pressed to death. Oh. And they would, they would either... <sighs> get you to lie down or they would stake out your arms and legs splayed yeah. out yeah. and then they'd get your front door, put it on top of you and then slowly add weight to the door yeah. until your ribs just gave way, just you were crushed. 
Yeah. And um, she was, uh, she's now a saint. She was canonized right. by the Catholic right. Church. And I don't know if you've ever been to York. It's one of my favourite places have, to go. I have, yeah. yeah. There's, there's a little street there called the Shambles. Yes, I remember it, yeah. It's a famous yeah. street because it's like going back yeah. to the 17th century. It's like, right. it's been sort of yeah. kept like a time capsule. And if you yeah. go down the Shambles, one of the houses um, has a shrine to Margaret Clitheroe. Oh, right. And it's reported that one of the houses, I forget which number it is, uh, was her shop. She was the wife of a butcher. Right. And, uh, yeah, she was like one yeah. of these people who, who well, took this punishment. Yeah, strangely enough, I haven't been there for so many years. I think it was 89, I was, something like 88, 89. Whatever year it was, I, I could check it because the reason it sticks in my mind was I was we went up, we were driving up there from the southeast of England and the car broke down in Leicester, I think it was. And we'd been planning to just go to York for the weekend. And we thought, well, shall we go back home somehow or shall we just carry it? So we managed to get a coach from Leicester up to York. And when I was on the coach, I remember reading about this attack that just happened. So it is linked. It was an IRA attack on the horse guards down in London. Right. And I remember the horror of it. I, was, I can remember reading this paper on the way up to York. So that sort of ties in with it, you know, but it's like you said earlier, but it's like <laughs> it was because of these earlier events that this stuff was still happening. Yeah, it's crazy, you know, isn't it? It's like a, a thread through history. Yeah. So, yeah, that, the York, I mean, amazing. I, I remember a little pub there, and uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's just an amazing little pub, and the beer's good. <laughs> Anyway, I'm going off the subject, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you get an yeah. idea of how uh, the, the the sort of religious and political tension that's sort of brewing in the country. And, yeah. you know, if you look at things from the, the Protestant perspective, um, you can see why. Um, towards the right. end of Elizabeth's reign, there was all sorts of plots that were yeah. that were on her life, you know, plots yeah. to poison her and stuff. Well, what? When James James the first, yeah, he, he was a, he was a king of Scotland as well, wasn't he? He was James that. James the sixth of Scotland became That's James right, the first yeah. of England. Yeah, well, didn't they expect him to be more lenient, and they were expecting more from him? And then, of course, they realised after what two years or something, oh, it's not going to happen. <laughs> this is part so, of the frustration, yeah, that, that led to the plotters. So, like, yeah. like how I mentioned, a number of the plotters, their fathers were persecuted under yes. Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth dies in 1603. And right. uh, before James even comes down to the throne, one of the conspirators, Thomas Percy, went up to see James. Yeah. And um, I, I know about Thomas Percy. He was at Prudhoe. He was what? North, he was at Prudhoe Castle in northeast England. Right which used to be just down the road from me at one point. Oh. But that's, that's, you know, yeah, I know a little bit about the Percys. Yeah, um, they're well-to-do family, very oh, well-connected. Yeah. Very powerful in the northeast of England. Yeah, yeah. definitely, yeah. He was, he, was the, he was sort of the, the money man in, some, in a lot of ways behind the plot. Right. But, I mean, right. he, he went up to speak to James and he sort of came away thinking, like you said, that James was going to be more lenient. Um, yeah. James's wife, Queen Anne, is Catholic at this time. Right. Um, James's mother, Mary Queen of Scots, she was a Catholic martyr. 
I mean, right. the um, the execution of Mary Queen of Scots is a hell of a story. I- I'm almost tempted to. Is that the one with a blunt axe? Well, it's not blunt. It oh, right. slips off the knot of the blindfold. Right, so, okay, you're looking puzzled. Oh, I think, yeah, I think I have heard this. It's horrendous, isn't it? Oh, it's horrendous, yeah. 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 She, um, oh, dear. All right, let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> you know, Elizabeth... I'm sure there's some people who want to hear it. Elizabeth um, the first. you know, she's quite reticent to sign the death warrant for Mary, Queen of Scots. And she's been in prison for years and... Uh, Finally, yeah. finally uh, Lord Burley sort of convinces her, basically, you know, it's time to go. Uh, her, him and Francis Walsingham, who's Elizabeth's spymaster, right. uh, they uncover a plot that Mary, Queen's of, Queen of Scots, is, is, is supposedly, you know, uh, wanting to uh, act on. But how, uh, how can she do anything from her cell? Well... Or the cellar, whatever. There's a great book... Just before we... I read this earlier in the year, or late last year. It's called um, Elizabeth's Spymaster by Robert Hutchinson. Oh, right. And it's all about Francis Walsingham. Right. And it's incredible how uh, sophisticated his network is. Right. He has spies, informants, men on his payroll right across Europe. He's got, oh. him in, he's got him in the Vatican. He's got him in every royal court in Europe. He's got him in Mary Queen of Scots's yeah. sort of retinue. It's mm-hmm. just incredible. It's like an early MI6, you know. And he's a complete workaholic. Yeah. He's one of these guys constantly writing letters all day until, you yeah. know, he finally collapses. Really right. brilliant guy. And one yeah. of the... When I say brilliant, I mean... Intellectually brilliant, not morally brilliant. Well, yeah. You know what I'm saying, but a talented guy, and, maybe. And obviously passionate as well. Passionate, a Protestant. Lo- loves his job. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. one of the main sort of... Uh, him and, and Lord Burley, William Cecil, are, are always sort of trying to guide Elizabeth to be wary of the Catholic threat. And you could right. say with good reason, because um, Walsingham was in... Paris on the day of the St. Bartholomew's uh, St. Bartholomew Day Massacre in Paris. And that was in 1570s, early 1570s. And it was this event where the Catholics basically ran amok and slaughtered thousands of the Huguenots, the Protestant Huguenots. And for some reason, uh, Francis Walsingham was on secondment at the time in Paris and he witnessed all this, and they said, like, the yeah. River Seine run red with blood, you know, when yeah, this happened. Yeah, and, yeah, You know, that was enough motivation for Walsingham to take the Catholic threat in England seriously, you Very know. Very seriously, yeah, yeah. Anyway, they finally nail Mary Queen of Scots. They get the death warrant signed, and um, they're, they're having a trial, and then the execution is happening at Fotheringay, which is north of London. It's sort of practically in the Midlands, I think. Right. And uh, they get, like, the the best executioner in the land is a guy called Bull. And they ship him up, and uh, it's time for the execution. And uh, one of Mary, Queen... Oh, there's the shock uh, originally, because Mary takes off her, her sort of main garment, and she's wearing a bright red petticoat underneath. And there's gasps of astonishment, because 
it's red is associated with Catholicism, and it's like a it's like a big to the to yeah. everyone around them, you know. Yeah. So the, the, she gets stripped yeah. off, and one of her uh, her attendees gets um, like a blindfold, like a silk blindfold, puts it across Mary's eyes. She right. puts her head on the chopping block. Bull comes over, raises the axe down like that and the story is is that the axe hits the knot on the blindfold and slips and buries in the back of her head oh and they just hear a whimpering sound so then he has another go and the axe goes up again and this time it connects with the neck and there's just a sinew keeping the head attached to the body right so he he gets down on his knees gets rid of that then he holds the head up for all to see Right. Without realising that she's wearing a wig and the head drops to the floor. Oh, right. And starts rolling around the floor. It's incredible. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. That's so dreadful, quite, it? It's grisly, yeah. But yeah. this is what life was like by then. Life was grisly. Oh, horrible. And uh, the, the people, eyewitnesses, said her lips were moving for like 15 minutes afterwards. Do you think that was just, was just nerve damage? You'd, ho- you'd hope so, that... wouldn't you? Yeah. But no one will ever be able to tell us one way or the other because no one's come yeah. back, have they? Well, it, it, no, it reminds <laughs> me of, did you ever watch The Young Ones? Yeah, yeah. Do, do you remember the scene with, uh, was it Rick Mayo when he's, no, no, it was, you know what I'm going to say, about the head coming off. He put, he, There's a sign on the railway carriage door, it says, do not lean out the window. I wonder why they say that. Oh. Head goes out. Train goes by, boom! Oh my God. And then he, go, he goes, to, he goes to collect it, doesn't he? Yeah. And the head, the head looks up at him and says, "You took your time, you bastard!" <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. I know, I know someone who was in the Young Ones actually. You really? Who's that? Yeah, he was. Uh, he played in Alexis Sales Band, and uh, Alexis right, Sales right. Band was on the Young Ones in a, in, a, in a couple of episodes. Yeah, I do remember. They, I don't remember the actual one, but uh, yeah, yeah. They, I mean, while we're on atrocities and so on, mm. I remember reading online probably a few years ago that when they when they got the, um, I don't, I don't think they. Some of them were some of them were killed in shootouts. There was one where they, they actually only had cutlasses, and you, you don't bring cutlasses to a <laughs> gunfight. Gun you know, so I thought that when I was reading it, you know. Um, but some, I remember reading somewhere that one of them, possibly Guido, Guido, because that that's something not a lot of people would know. We we know obviously, but his real name is Guido, G U I E D O. I think it was a, and. But he'd thrown himself off the scaffold because he thought it would be a quicker way of going because he knew what was coming. Yeah. I mean, the, the bravery, I know you've got a choice then, but the bravery to do that. But then I think, I don't know, I, I'd like to think I would be brave enough just to do it because it's better than the option, isn't it? Well, yeah, the punishment was... For for the conspirators, the ones who weren't shot at, or killed at Hull Beach, at the Hull Beach house yeah. standoff. But that was one of those Catholic uh, safe houses, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. In, up in the Midlands, I think? Yeah, I think, I think it was so, up in yeah. the Midlands. Hull, yeah, near Leicester, wasn't it? I think so. Near Leicester, somewhere so. But yeah, if, if the one the conspirators who were caught, like Guy Fawkes, uh, yeah, they were hung, drawn and quartered. Um, 
So yeah. they, they were tied to a like a like a board and then dragged right. from by a horse from the tower to wherever they're being executed. Some of them were executed yeah. opposite the House of Lords, ironically. Yeah, the, was it the palace, palace, um, palace grounds or something? Yeah. The old, old palace grounds, something like that. There was two places. The, the executions took place over two days in two different places. I can't right. remember exactly the names of them. But yeah, they were dragged by a horse from the tower to there. Then they were hung, but cut down quick before they would die. Right. And then, yeah, then it was gentles cut off, entrails yeah. taken out and burnt, and then uh, chopped up into pieces. Oh, it's horrific. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I heard that story that when, you know, Guy Fawkes was was dragged by the horse, when he was going up the gallows, he climbed up and then jumped off to break his own neck. Yeah. So did, did, is that the truth? Is that what happened? That's what I heard. That's what yeah, I've, that's what I've I read. But, but I've read it recently and I can't, like, well, I've looked for it recently and not found it. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're sort of restricted to eyewitness accounts and, and stuff, aren't we, from the period? So yeah, yeah. I, there's no reason to, dis, to, to to doubt that. No, no. No reason to no. doubt that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's how desperate it is because they did, he didn't want to be conscious for the... No, who would? Who and would? <sighs> also, he, he's been tortured as well before this. Yes. Yeah, but I saw his signature. Oh, my uh, God. You could tell. You could tell how... Yeah, it was shaky, like like somebody with I don't know Parkinson's or something. It was awful. Yeah, there's two there's two signatures. There's one before the torture and one after yeah. the torture, and they're yeah. they're not they don't even look like they're written by the same guy. No, I'd say it was torture was not um, commonly done in really? this period. No, it had to be signed off by the king or like a privy council member. It wasn't huh. it wasn't at the time. From what no. we're told, it wasn't conducted no. sort of at will. You know, it was it was a big deal to torture someone, and there's right. a, you can see the record that James writes, and he says, "Yeah, he shall be tortured." But you know, with the the small means at first, increasing by degree, right? And uh, he he um, gave permission for the rack to be used as well, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know whether because there's a story about the three degrees of torture. I don't know if you've heard that. No, no. Because, um, you know, like those buddy cop movies where they say, we're going to give you the third degree. Oh, right. That's where it comes from. Yeah, and it was it was sort of standardised by, um, I think it was Queen Catherine of Austria in, I want to say, that the 1800s, right. early 1800s. She sort of standardised the three degrees of torture that were sanctioned. And uh, the, right. the first degree was thumb screws. Yeah. So you'd put you'd take the thumbs in this device, and they would gradually tighten a screw on the thumbnail until it exploded. The second. <sighs> this is a gruesome episode, this, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the second degree of torture. Oh. They'd strip your uh, your top half. They strip your claws off your top half. Tie right. tie you to a ladder, and then they would light a candle sort of under your armpit that would slowly burn you. Yeah, that was the second degree, and the third degree they would tie your hands behind your back with a rope, and then from that rope they would take a long piece up and over a beam, and they would right. pull on that rope to lift yeah. your arms up to so the point where they pop out the joints. Oh, to the point where people would pull you off the ground, and then someone else would come and hang off your legs. Oh, so yeah. it would completely dislocate your shoulders. And if you manage to um, say that, if you manage to go through the three degrees without confessing, 
good job. You're innocent. <laughs> that, that, that's almost like the uh, the witchcraft thing where they were oh, ducking them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What was that again? The witchcraft one with the duck. Yeah, they something like if if they if they if they sunk. They, they, is it, they, they they're sunk, innocent. They yeah, so they, so they couldn't win anyway. <laughs> Oh. You know, that, that's the point anyway. They couldn't win. No. No. Yeah, dreadful, dreadful business. Horrible. Yeah, so, but, I don't know. Um, Should we go on to the actual plot itself? Yeah, have we got time? I'm How are you for time? Oh, I'm, f- I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm all right for time. All right, I'm let's... let's I mean, go on. Sorry, sorry, okay. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's, you're doing really well with it at the moment, so, I mean... Okay, so I, I understand they were under the actual. They'd rented a little coal cellar or something underneath, but it wasn't like it wasn't like it would be today. Obviously, with all the security and cameras and everything, and mm. there, there was even a brothel down there somewhere. There were little well, shops. The brothels um, were outlawed in the fifteen fifties or fifteen sixties. Oh right, but but, I, I read that there was one down there. Oh, maybe maybe there was an odd one. Maybe, maybe maybe some some clandestine brothels existed after, maybe. but maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, it was a rabbit warren. It wasn't like yes, it wasn't like the Westminster yeah. we see today. It was a, a yeah. mesh of tunnels, houses, yeah. shops, pubs, and yeah. palaces of Westminster as well, all interlinked and right. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, the first sort of meeting takes place at the Duck and Drake yeah. pub. Which yeah. uh, and this is like a year before. This is like sixteen oh four. That's right. I read that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the spring of sixteen oh four, and there's only I think five plotters originally. You've got Robert Catesby, who's the main man. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Who, again, whose father was persecuted. Yeah. They're, they're all expecting great th- things from James. Right. We we sort of bypass that, but James comes to power, and then there's two plots. There's the by plot and the main plot. The main plot was Walter Raleigh was involved in, and the, these were Catholic plots to get rid of James. Right, right. And so when that happens, all these recusant laws come back in. These laws about Catholics and priest holes and punishments and fines and all the rest right. of it. And that's like the final straw for Catesby. It's like this with Elizabeth. Yeah, Sorry, go they've ex- they've ex- well, I'm just saying they've exhausted their patience. They they can't see anything working in their favour. No, and but- they just think we've we just got to do something. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I was just going to mention um, Guido himself. He was born a Protestant, mm. and then his father died, and his mother remarried a Catholic, which sort of had converted him. So you know he that was really an accident of fate, you know, fate, fate. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's one of the early plotters. He's he's recruited in Flanders because after he converts yeah. to Catholicism, he you yeah. know he sort of stands around. He, he sort of sticks with it for about ten years and then says, "I've had enough of this. I'm joining the Spanish army." And he yeah. goes to. Uh, so he's fighting for the Pope in the Low Countries. Yeah, yeah, against in the Ho- Dutch. W- yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, this makes him a perfect guy for the plotters because because yeah. Go on. No, it's after you. After you. <laughs> the, yeah. the other main plotters are well known. The wealthy guys, but he's not. 
he's been out of the country for 10 years. He's, a, he's, ah, an, he's not a known handy. face. People right, don't know right. who he is. Catesby's, Catesby's well known, to, especially to the authorities. I mean, these right. are guys who have been paying fines. The fathers have been persecuted. Yeah. You can imagine that Burley, Walsingham, they've all got spies all around. They, they, they're monitoring these guys. Right, But, right. yeah, um, Guy Fawkes, he's been out of the country for 10 years. He's yeah. a good guy. Plus, he's a military man. He knows about gunpowder. He, he does, yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. He knew all about it. He'd been using it for years. Yeah, yeah. He'll, he'll know yeah, about yeah. siege warfare. Yeah. He'll know about logistics, how to move it safely, and all this sort of stuff. He's, he's the perfect guy. And he's, he's the odd man out as well because he's of relatively low birth. Right. Whereas, whereas um, Catsby and uh, Thomas Percy, Thomas Winter, they're all from very wealthy... Uh, Upper-class people, yeah. Yeah, generally from the Midlands or the North. Oh, right, right. And, yeah, right. they've all got land and they can afford to pay these fines for being recusants. In fact, uh, right. the recusants, the people, the Catholics who maybe couldn't afford to pay these fines and sort of went along with these laws and went to the church services... The, right. the recusants derisively called them church papists. Oh, right. And um, there's a story, like they would do tricks. They would say, they would like play mental games to sort of take them out of the out of the mass. Like cro- like crossing your fingers while they were saying, yeah, yeah. saying the mass. And there was yeah. even a story of one guy who had cloth in his ears, a Catholic who had cloth <laughs> in his ears. And I, it always made me wonder... I used to get cold cloth ears as a kid. Did you used to get cold cloth ears? Occasionally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like, when you're a kid, if you didn't do what you... Yeah. If you weren't listening to your mum and dad, they'd say, oh, you yeah. cloth ears. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing, isn't it, how these things come down through history, yeah. Well, this is it. I don't know if it yeah. comes from the church papers or whether maybe it's tied to the First World War where right. the soldiers used to wrap their heads in cloth wadding when the big guns were going off. Yes. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, so I don't well, know. There's there's another one I could tell you about. My my dad used to often, well, I think nearly all the time, really, he would call the, the, the toilet or the bathroom, as they say in America, because they're very sensitive about these things. They never they never say toilet. It's always oh. the bathroom. Oh, can I can I use your bathroom? Why, are you dirty? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but anyway, um, you know, back, as you know, back in Britain, it's, it's the loo or the bog sometimes, the bog. Mm. Yep. Um, and my dad used to call it the Kazi. Yep. K-H-A-Z-I. And I found out where that came from. It came from the Boer War. Really? Yeah, it came so the old soldiers had come back from the Boer War, which was like, you know, the English imperialists fighting the Dutch imperialists over the African continent. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and... Yeah, Kazi, definitely, it was an Afrikaans term. So, like, Dutch, Afrikaans. Really? Wow, I never knew that. Yeah, Kazi. And I've always liked that expression, Kazi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, bog, we use bog in, the, in our house. Yeah, bog's quite common, isn't it? <laughs> well, I'm quite common, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> no, no I, I, meant, I, meant, I didn't mean common like that. I meant... <laughs> I know what you no, meant. I'm yeah, pulling you know, your leg. I'm pulling yeah, your right. leg. I wonder where you're I'm right. pulling your leg comes from. Yeah, Maybe yeah, when you I get wonder. in the th- that's from when you get in the third when degree you're... and someone hangs off yeah. your legs. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, right, let's go back well, to the duck and drake. <laughs> Otherwise, we're never going to get through this. <laughs> it's funny. I, I shouldn't really bring this up, but I remember years ago seeing a piece where. 
where somebody, you know, I don't know if you know where I'm going with this. We're talking about stretching the limbs and everything, right? And there was a thing about blokes stretching their John Thomas wow. by by attaching weights to it. Oh, my God. <laughs> don't I try this at home. No, don't try this at home, young, young men. <laughs> Dear me. Does it work, though? I might give it a go. <laughs> Didn't work for me. <laughs> oh, <bloody laughs> right. So let's go back. Let's go back. Let's get back on track. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's the year before the plot. So the plot happens in 1605, November 1605. Yes. Yeah. James yeah. I is king. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you like your Bibles, the King James version of the Bible, it's, it's that King James. That King James, yeah, right. So yeah. it's, it's the era okay. of Francis Bacon and Walter Raleigh and uh, uh, Count Richelieu. He's a young man at this point over in France. He's like in his 20s when this is happening. So it's this period. Right. So anyway, right. the year before, in the spring, they have this meeting. Catesby, who's fed up, uh, absolutely fed up. This is Duck and Drake. This is the Duck and Drake, yeah. It's in, yeah. I think it's in the spring of 1604, the year before. Was it, was it Old Holborn? Holborn, is it? Holborn? I'm not sure now. Or was it? No, it was actually near the palace, wasn't it? Near, off the Strand, apparently. Oh, uh, right, right. Apparently it was off the Strand. But yeah. it's one of these things where we don't really know. We, right, you know, it's, so it's, it's long gone. It's long gone, yeah. And right. and the the sort of the main five conspirators meet there. You've got Robert Catesby, um, Jack Wright, uh, Thomas Percy, who's the really well connected guy, right? Thomas Winter, and Guy Fawkes. Right. And and this is where um, Robert Catesby said the only way to sort of end this is to blow up the blow them all up with powder. And right. so that's when the when the sort of plan is uh, first set in motion. Um, curiously, in like the next room, there's a Catholic service happening, and it's, it's some people believe they took communion while they were there. Now I'm not sure which priest it was, whether it was Henry Garner or John Gerard or Tessamond. The the three main priests are involved in this situation, right? Um, but apparently there, there was a, a service going on next door and they took communion. So, okay, we've got, we know what we're going to do. We're going to get this. So they start getting the powder and stuff. And um, Thomas Percy, as you mentioned earlier, he has a house in Westminster right. uh, that he has the lease on. So that's where they start moving the powder to, Guy Fawkes. Right. And throughout this whole plot, Parliament keeps getting the state opening of Parliament keeps getting prorogued, which is this horrible constitutional term in the UK. It just means it's getting put off. It's been being postponed. Right. And this keeps giving them more time. And it means the plot keeps getting expanded and more people get sucked into it. Um, So, yeah, they start moving the powder. Moving the powder turns out to be a bigger job. So they they recruit a couple of other guys, Robert Keyes and the servant you mentioned, Tom Bates. Yes, yeah. That's where they come in to sort of help Guy Fawkes. And, right. And, uh, yeah, it keeps getting delayed. What does that mean? Well, with more time for plotting. Yeah, and more, more time to be found out as well, you know. Yeah. So. Well, this is where, when it gets... Um, prorogued in 1605 all of a sudden they have this summer of 1605 where they're they're basically waiting 
And that's when they go up to the Midlands and start rallying, try and rally support. And they come up with this second half of the plot. And basically the second half of the plot is to kidnap James's daughter, Elizabeth, right. who's about eight or nine at this time. Right. We're going to cap- kidnap her. She's been held in like Coventry. She's staying in like Coventry. She's miles away. And we will put her in as a Catholic queen with a regent, probably the Duke of Northumberland, someone like that, someone in the north. And we'll right. we'll sort of gather as many people as we can from the north and the Midlands to stage an uprising. And, uh, it, I mean, yeah, it's, it's audacious, really. Right. Uh, this this idea of a Midlands uprising, um, but you know, this is where more people get sucked into the plot. Plot. So um, Jack Wright's brother Kit, he gets brought into the plot. Thomas's Win- Thomas Winter's brother Robert, yeah, he comes into the plot, and John Grant, who I don't think we know much about, and um, because of this sort of extension in the plot, they're thinking about an uprising and horses and arms and with, right. with the proroguing keeps setting things back they're, they're running out of money they're needing more money and right. uh, that's when they bring sort of the last three guys in um everard digby uh, ambrose rookwood and tresham the last guy to come francis, on board francis tresham francis tresham and, and this yeah. is only like a month this is is this is like september 1605 right. when he comes on board and right. he and he's proper reticent he says he thinks Catesby's mad and he tries to right. talk him out of it he even offers to pay pay him to go to Europe and just forget about all this yeah, yeah. and um, how, how and he ended up being being killed as one of the conspirators did he or did yeah, it, was, it a, all, was it in a shootout all of these guys none of these guys survived Really, they, really? Are, they were either yeah. killed at Hull Beach House or they were found afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Um, the only people who survived were a couple of the priests who knew what was going on. So, because because right. this is being expanded in this summer of sixteen oh five, more and more people are finding out about it. Um, there's um, there's a pilgrimage to in Wales, uh, Saint Winifred's Well, which happens in August September of sixteen oh five. And uh, one of the conspirators is there, Ambrose, plus Anne Vokes, uh, who's right. one of these women who is like a shepherd for the priests. She's part of this network of, of recusants who harbour priests. Right. And uh, Henry Garnet is there, and he's the superior of the Jesuits in England. Oh, right. Henry Garnet, he's a, an important guy. And uh, as they're going on this pilgrimage, they sort of stay at friends' houses on the way. And I think it's at Ambrose Rookwood's house where they stop. And this Anne, Anne Vokes, she notices the war horses in the stable. Right. And she says something to Henry Garnet, the head of the Jesuits. She says, I'm going to forget the, like, the words, but she says something like, these wild heads have something ominous planned. For God's sake, Henry, talk to Catesby, talk him out of it. All right. So they know, they know something's coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, even Catesby's not immune to this sort of thing. He he gives a confession to his personal priest, who is, uh, what was his name? What's the priest? Uh, I'm sure I said it before. Tessimund. 
Yeah, Catesby's priest is Tessamond, and uh, he gives a confession to Tessamond about the plot. And it's funny, it's a funny sort of uh, technical thing because it's it's classed as a walking confession. It's not in a confessional box. Right. So Tessamond tells Henry Garnet, the head of the Jesuits, and uh, Henry Garnet doesn't notify the authorities. He refuses to break the sanctity of confession. Right. But he goes out of his way to talk Catesby out of it. Right. And uh, he even off, he, he, he ends with, with Garnet convincing Catesby to wait until Garnet has sent a man to Rome to talk to the Pope and get the Pope's advice. And Catesby agrees. He said, I won't do anything till your man comes back from Rome. And he, and he didn't hold his promise. He went ahead anyway. Right. Interesting. I didn't know any of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's and, wild. And uh, after the the executions and the shootout and so on, mm. all these Catholic safe houses and all the people that, you know, these sort of wealthier Catholics that were looking after these people, did was there like retribution on all of them? Persecution well, coming up, and the people who were part of the plot—they lost all their holdings, right. all their lands were confiscated, and uh, people who weren't involved with the plot, like uh, the the leader of the Jesuits, Henry um, Garnet, he right. w- he was hung, drawn, and quartered. They they pinned it on him. Right. They they wanted to make examples of them. Yeah, yeah. and get maximum political capital. Yes. Out of the situation. Yeah. Even yeah. even though, you know, uh, by this time of the plot, things have calmed down with Spain. Uh, James, early in his reign, gets a ceasefire. He agrees a ceasefire with uh, King Philip III, right. I think it would be, of Spain. Right. And so they agree a ceasefire, and things are improving on that front. But still, having that political capital of a Catholic plot... See, this is why I wonder just how much the state knew about this plot. And... You know, never let a good crisis go to waste. No, exactly. And we'll we'll just stop it just when we need to. Yeah. You know, we'll let them. We'll let them. We get the bonus of all the land and all the holdings. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we get this political capital. Yeah, and, and also you, it's a bit like um, like you're fishing, and you're you're sort of luring in others because the longer they let it go, there'll be more coming in, and get rid of all of them in one go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's good thinking, really. And uh, it's it's not like the British state wasn't sophisticated enough to do things like that. We know from from reading yeah. about Walsingham and and Lord Burley that you know they were they were master plotters, yeah, and uh, conspirators yeah. themselves. You know, yeah. Um, one of the big things that that sort of blew open the plot. I told you before, I got a print of the Monteagle letter. Yes, yeah, and um, we don't know who wrote it. It's, it was used with a disguised handwriting, and, right. it, and it wasn't signed. There was a name. I had it jotted down. I probably can't read my scroll. Mm. I should have been a doctor. My writing is so untidy. Um, yeah, I'll probably find it later when I don't need to. Some people say it was Tresham. Yeah. Yes. Because he was... I, I had another name written down somewhere. Mm. Anyway, get, carry on. <laughs> yeah. Well, um... Lord Monteagle is uh, Tresham's uncle, I think. And he would have been present at the state opening of Parliament. And uh, Monteagle receives this letter 
maybe 10 days before the state opening of Parliament. And it's a warning letter. I'll read it, shall I? Yeah, it's just basically asking him to steer clear of a building, isn't it? Yeah. My Lord, out of the love I bear to some of your friends, I have care of your preservation. Therefore, I would advise you, as you tender your life, to devise some excuse to shift your attendance at this Parliament, for God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. And think not slightly yeah. of this advertisement, but retire yourself into the country where you may expect the event in safety. For though there may be no appearance of any stir, yet I say they shall receive a terrible blow, this Parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. This council yeah. is not to be condemned because it may do you good and can do you no harm, for the danger has passed as soon as you have burnt this letter. And I hope God will give you the grace to make good use of it, to whose holy protection I commend you. So, yeah, it's an anonymous, anonymous tip-off. Tip-off, yeah. Don't yeah. go. Go to the country. Get out, get out of London. So what yeah. does Monteagle do? He gives it straight to Burley. Gives it straight to the, you know, James's right-hand man. Yeah. So this is where sort Ooh. of uh, searches start, you know. Yeah. So they need yeah. to start searching Parliament to find out. We should say at this point, because we left the story with the gunpowder in Thomas Percy's house. Yeah, and they'd been shifting it over to his cellar, and there was a lot of firewood down there, wasn't there? <laughs> Rather a lot. Well, conveniently, this sort yeah. of undercroft becomes the least opens for it, and it's directly under the House of Lords, and Thomas yeah. Percy snaffles it up, and um, that's when they start moving it across. Yeah, 30, 36 barrels of gunpowder. Yeah. What and, is that? Two and a half ton, I think it works out at, something like that. I read, two and a half tons? I read one ton, but one ton. we're yeah. estimating. I mean, from what I've read, like modern ballistics guys say that if that had gone off, it would have destroyed the entire House of Lords and everything and anyone within 100 metres. Wow. And this isn't like a, an average day at Parliament. This is the state opening of Parliament. So you've got the king there, the queen, the princes. You've yeah. got all the bishops, all the lords, all the members of yeah. parliament, all the judges. Yeah. yeah. And all the records, all the parliamentary records, all your statutes, all your laws up yeah. in flames. I mean, uh -huh. it's, a, it's a complete decapitation of the state. Yeah. And then you've got all the ordinary people just going about their lives, you know, just re regular people. Yeah. Well... Just happen to be in that area. You know, um... In that summer of 1605, where, where Parliament's prorogued, Catsby approaches Henry Garnet, the head of the Jesuits, with a hypothetical question, you know. He says, is it ever justified to kill innocents? And Henry Garnet says, in a just war, maybe. And this upset Henry Garnet because people are getting wind that something's coming and, and this is what shakes him up, like this guy's planning something. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it, I mean, it would have been unimaginable if it had actually happened. What well, would have yeah. happened, the chaos that would have ensued. You would have no law. How, how do you enforce a law if you don't have a physical copy? It's like today we keep physical copies of all the laws of the land, you know. Yeah, it would be just like starting again almost, wouldn't it? That was the plan. And then put Elizabeth well, on yeah. the throne. 
a Catholic yeah. monarch. I mean, it was yeah. doomed to fail from the start. It was it was too audacious, yeah. really. Yeah, you know, was. some people say it was just. It started out as just a lashing out of frustration, and then the second half of the plot, it was sort of delusions of grandeur, and we're going to restart with a Catholic monarch. It was it was never. Never, and, never uh, sensible. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and they sent emissaries, emissaries to Spain as well to try and get support from Spain. You know, we've got X amount, a thousand Catholics here who will help, you know. I don't think they ever told them about the plot, but they said right. that maybe something would be coming and, you know, if you want to send, you know, this might be a good time to send some ships over. But right. like I said, the peace treaty, well, the, the ceasefire had already been signed Spain had already been massively stung by the Spanish Armada in 1588. They'd lost yeah. all the the maritime power at that point. With well, it's that, it's the, the, the big storm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just yeah, complete storm. Completely botched invasion. Yeah, you know, it was yeah. uh, that was sort of the nail in the coffin of. of yeah. It was an in, in, attempted invasion of England by yeah. Spain. Did Did you know they did that in Cornwall? Mm. Yeah, they in down in Penzance. Uh, no. 15, it was around about that time. I can't remember without looking. It was 15, maybe a few years before that. And they, it was just like one ship. And I think it was just one ship. And they land, they landed at Penzance, uh, Mausel, which is next door, Newlin, a little, uh, they, they, well, they landed at Penzance. They burnt down a village called Paul, which is still there today you know, replacement of it. Um, and they, they, they were sort of local legends. For, sorry, my throat's going. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. It's that They're mist local. in the Pacific Northwest, it's getting to you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there, there were legends. That, in fact, even when I was young, when I first went down to Cornwall, my, my dad pointed this out to me. And he said, if you, if you, when you're in Penzance or around St. Ives, anywhere around there, just look around you. You'll see people that look, um, how can I put this? It's like racial stereotyping, but it wasn't a racist thing. It was just a historic thing um, who look sort of swarthy, Spanish looking, yeah. right? And he said this is well, the story he'd heard. He didn't say it was true. He just said this is what has been handed down and it's in, it was in books and everything. Mm. But when they landed, they raped a lot of women, and maybe it wasn't always rape. Who knows? But, <laughs> but, and there were some um, some very swarthy looking people come out of that. Now it's serious that I, I, when I was younger in the seventies, I did see that around Penzance quite a lot. I did see that. In fact, I went to a, a job interview in um, Helston in Cornwall, not that far away. And this was in the 80s, I think. And I was being interviewed by these two guys for salesmen selling building materials. And one of them was, he'd come up from Penzance, from another smaller branch, to interview me. And he was 100% that stereotype. Yeah. And I got him, I got him talking about his family history and stuff. And he said, yeah, I've been to Penzance all my life. So were my family, so my parents, my parents' parents. And I, I didn't say to him what I was thinking, but I was thinking, well, I wonder if that's true then, you know, because... <laughs> yeah, it could be. But I've, I've noticed in recent years when I've been there, I don't see it at all now. Mm. And I don't know whether that's just because the place is more open up to outside influences anyway, and it wasn't so much 
you know, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. So I don't know if there's any truth in it, but it could be. It's just as it's just as well those Spanish didn't land in Hartlepool. As you know that. I, yeah, they, they hung the monkey, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've heard about that. Yeah, there <laughs> monkey, was a... Mo- monkey swingers. They used to call them monkey swingers. Mo- monkey hangers. Oh, monkey hangers. Sorry. That's yeah. right. Yeah, there was a there was a, a monkey washed up on the shores of Hartlepool. <laughs> they didn't know what it was. They thought it was a Spanishman or something. They thought he, thought it was a French spy. Yeah. So they hung yeah. it. And uh, Hartlepool's football team or soccer team is still called the Monkey Hangers. Yeah, by other teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's a funny joke. <laughs> Oh dear, monkey hangers. Uh, but the, when when the Spanish landed in Cornwall, it was just like a raid. It wasn't. There was no intention to stop it. Mm. And they, I, th- I think they, yeah, they burnt down this village. They'd caused a, quite a lot of destruction. And I, I don't know whether they killed many people, but I presume they did a few anyway. And then word got to London or Portsmouth, probably, you know. You know, and they sent a ship down or sent ships down. And the story goes that these Royal Navy vessels, you know, you've got to imagine, as you know, they were the most powerful Navy in the world at the time. (laughs) And they sent these ships down and supposedly they saw them coming at a distance and they did a runner. They managed to get off off mainland, get in their ship and clear off. You know, they they only just got away, really. So, um, yeah, it's worth worth reading up on that one. Um, 59, no, hang on, 15, when was the Great Armada, was that? 88, 1588. 1588, I think this was, it wouldn't have been after that, would it? I wouldn't have thought so. No, I'd have to check on that one, yeah. Yeah, there was various incursions going on before that. Francis Drake famously harassed the Spanish. He was just rampaging across Spain, just you know, decimating Spanish ports and ships at will, yes. it seemingly, you know, and that's why he became so famous as a, a commander, admiral, whatever. But. Yeah, he was more of a pirate, wasn't he, really? <laughs> yeah, I would say so, yeah. I, I think so, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was um, Royal Navy sort of comes out of that sort of like privateer sort of seagoing tradition where they, you know, the spoils of war, they... Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, even if you come up to Trafalgar, they were taking the vessels back. That was, what, 200 years later. They they were taking the vessels back and then it got hit by a storm. It's funny how these storms seem to come up. Mm. And and actually, the English people, you know, especially back in the 1600s or whatever, they took that as a sign that God was with them, you know, that they were... Mm. What's like the Americans have a term for it as well, don't they? They have a different term. Um, manifest destiny, isn't it? Right, manifest destiny. Yeah, yeah. The, the Elizabethans would have called it divine providence. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's funny how these storms sort of do crop up, and and if it works in your favour, oh God, we've got on our side, you know. Well, the uh, the plotters they considered. It divine providence that this undercroft became available for for lease directly under the House of Lords. Yes, it was. Yeah. They saw that as a sign, a sign a from sign, God. Sign that from, a sign from God. Yeah, yeah, that he was on their side. You know, and he was sort of uh, condoning this this attempt, this slaughter, right. essentially. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. So anyway, let's go back to the Monteagle letter. 
Yeah. So Cecil gets this uh, this letter, this anonymous tip off, and uh, King James is off hunting somewhere, so he doesn't bother him. <laughs> right. He waits for James to come back, and uh, James is given the credit for decoding the letter that it's a plot to use powder. The Stuart family has a bad relationship with gunpowder. James's father was killed by gunpowder. He was uh, assassinated. So, yeah, James, according to the state, James figures out, like, this is a plot. So this is when the searching starts. And um, um, the um, Monteagle, who receives the letter, him and a few others, they, they start searching Westminster. Yeah. They, and like we were describing before, it's a complete maze, you know, of places. And they stumble across Guy Fawkes. And uh, he tells him he's uh, an employee of Thomas Percy. Yeah, and he called himself John Johnson. John, John Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Great, isn't it? I'm John yeah. Johnson. And uh, <laughs> they, they let him go. They don't, they, they, they leave it. Right. And then they go back to James. Now, this is the story. Now, I think, and I'm not a historian or, a, or an expert, but I think this is Cecil letting James take the credit because Cecil yeah. is, a, is, a, is a very smart guy, like his father. And so they, they, they bring news of this, this top John Johnson. Yeah, <laughs> and it would have given, given him brownie points to, you know, oh, here, you can have this one. You can say you did this. Absolutely. It'll make you, it'll make you look intelligent. <laughs> and, uh, hey, to be fair, he was no slouch either. James I was a smart oh, guy. Right. Oh, but, right. but, yeah, the story goes that Cecil takes it to uh, King James and he says, no, go back there and search properly. And yeah. so they do. And this is the, the midnight, early hours of the morning, November 5th, where this small right. party, they find Guy Fawkes there. He's got, right. he's got, he's wearing spurs for a horse. Right. He's got matches. He's got a watch. <laughs> and they find 36 bottles of gunpowder. Case, case I, closed. I shouldn't laugh, but it's quite funny when you look at it like that. It's like, I mean, what was he going to say? Well, do you know, uh, <laughs> it is, uh, it, yeah, I'm John Johnson. That's what he said, basically. And I, and I work for Thomas Percy. But his, yeah. at his interrogation, um, he's asked. he was asked what he was planning to do. And his words, it, this might not be exact, but his words were, I was going to blow you Scotch beggars back to the mountains you came from. Ooh. <laughs> So, yeah, he wasn't one to mince his words. Yeah, he's very brave as well. I mean, he, he knew he knew what was coming. Absolutely. Once he was caught. Yeah. So yeah. I suppose it was, they couldn't make it any worse, could they, really? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you yeah. might as well just say what you think at that point, mightn't you? Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. what's the point? You know that the worst is coming. And yeah. he, he managed to avoid it, as we as we said. You know, he apparently well, we jumped have, off the gallows. Hope, hopefully he did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to think so. So that was yeah. the plot blown, and yeah. um, but so word gets out that Guy Fawkes has been arrested. The rest of the conspirators they go ahead with the second part of the, the plan, the coup. They fled. Really? They go. They go north to the Midlands and Catesby. For whatever reason, I don't know what sort of grip he had on the other conspirators, but he pushes on and says, "No, we're going to continue. We're going to rally the banner." We're going to rally the, the people to our banner and they, they go around 
the Midlands. They go to Warwick Castle and steal a load of horses and weapons from there. And they end up, at like we've mentioned, at Hull Beach House, and this is where the standoff is with uh, Catesby and uh, who else is there? Winter's there. Thomas Percy's there. Yeah. Um, funnily enough, <laughs> the night before they're found, they have some powder with them and it got saturated. So what they decide to do is is lay out the powder next to the fire to dry. <laughs> you can't make this shit up, can you? You can't make it. Yeah, it's Keystone Cops, isn't it? <laughs> so guess what happens? It blows up. <laughs> Catesby gets burnt. Loads of them get burnt and injured. <laughs> and and uh, the next day, the King's men arrive, 200 of them, to Hull mm. Beach House, and there's a shootout. It doesn't last long. They reckon no, no. that it was the one, same. One bullet got two men. I was, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Winter and, uh, sorry, Percy and Catsby. Right. Who were already injured. <laughs> but, right. But yeah, they so, uh, they took, they took one bullet between them, apparently, and, and Catsby died clutching a, a picture of the Virgin Mary. Oh, right. So the story goes. Yeah, so Ooh. that was the end of the plotters. Yeah. Uh, they didn't get any support, you know, when they were rampaging around the Midlands trying to rally support with the other recusants. Well, like, no one was interested. Yeah. Like, uh, it was it was absolutely doomed to fail. Yeah, dreadful and, business. Uh, so, yeah, a good chunk of the conspirators, a handful died at Hull Beach House, and then the rest were quickly, yeah. fairly quickly uh, yeah. rounded up in London and the surrounding yeah, areas. Yeah. I, I would have much preferred to have been one caught in Holbeach House and had, had a fighting chance of, you know, at least take one down with you. Absolutely. And they'd made but, the minds um, up that they were going to die there. They'd, you know, yeah. Catesby said, we, we, we will die here. This is the last yeah. stand. It's a bit like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance <laughs> Kid, you know. <laughs> yeah, very much so. <laughs> yeah, we just got to leave and do what we can. Yeah. And so, I mean, the ironic thing is, you know, the thing that brewed this discontent was sort of multi-generational, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, Feuding? Yeah, uh, persecution. Yeah, persecution. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, like yeah. these conspirators, yeah. their dads had been imprisoned and fined and impoverished. Yeah, by so the they're going to grow up, grow up, you know, hating the state, but did that to their parents and so on. And Yeah, and, and yeah. because you of... You've just got to break that cycle somehow, haven't you? Absolutely, yeah. It doesn't yeah. violence doesn't lead anywhere. No. But the, the ironic thing is, because of their actions, this allowed James to bring back even more laws and more fines, and and Catholics were persecuted even harder afterwards. Then maybe, so then maybe they would have been. Them. Maybe they would have been. Yeah. In time, yeah. So yeah. And and just a, a minor thing that um, sort of came to my mind was. They came out with this rhyme, the you know, gunpowder, treason, and plot. How does it go now? Gunpowder, remember. treason, and plot. Remember, yeah, remember, remember, the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason, and plot. It should never be forgot. Is that something like that? I can never remember the second half. Yeah, but it is. It, it should never be I, forgot. Yeah, it should yeah. never be forgot. And I, I was thinking about that and thinking, well, you know, it's quite a cool little ditty at the time. And it's lasted all this time, and it's like an advertising jingle. Wow! Yeah. And if you, and if you think about it, it's like, in fact, it has been an advertising jingle in my lifetime in in England, you know, and mm. yours. Yeah. Um, it's it's you could you could compare that to what's gone on in the last two to three years, 
with the way that they pushed certain things on the public and made them repeat things, safe and effective, um, and various other things as well, which like mantras is the word I'm looking for. They're like mantras. Mm. And it's, it's a way of instilling this propaganda, if you like, in people's brains so, you know, it's just there and it's ready to pull out, you know, the power of those little jingles. And whoever put that together was very, very good at what he did. Yeah, I wonder where it came you from, know. that rhyme. I, I, that's something I don't, I've not looked into, where the rhyme sort of originated from. Yeah. Because um, after this event, it was, it was sort of designated as a Protestant holiday. It was cel- right. celebrated every year. Was it the Observance Act, wasn't it? Was that right? That sounds sounds right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've got it written down somewhere. Where, yeah, did, where was it? They'd ring the bells on the 5th of November and it was a, another Protestant festival for, for yeah, a couple of hundred the, years, I think. Yeah, before, it says 1606, an act of Parliament passed called the Observance of 5th of November. Mm. And it enforced an annual public day of Thanksgiving. Wow. Um, they had to attend church and there was a special sort of um, gunpowder service, you know, <laughs> celebrating it. Um, and then I, I forget when that they sort of, it was like an act you had to go. I mean, I'm not sure everyone probably did, but, but I don't think it's, it's probably one of those laws that I never really enforced, you know, after a few years, it's probably forgotten. Yeah, I don't know how. It was similar to the recusant laws. Um, but right. that Elizabeth had as well, this sort of thing where you have to go to church or you would pay fines or be imprisoned yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. but how long it lasted afterwards, I don't know. Yeah. Because you get, in fact, would it have lasted past the revolution? I mean, it would have stopped during the revolution maybe or the civil war. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, yeah, the other thing was like, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, the, the Spanish thing sort of drew to a close. And with that, there was less, you know, there's sort of less anti-Catholicism, if you like, probably, as the decades went by. Maybe that's... Yeah, well, I mean, the Church of England solidified, didn't it, from that point? Yeah. And uh, I guess the Catholic threat reduced, you know. It was the, la- it was the last throw of the dice, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. For, yeah. Uh, for the Reformation, yeah. the yeah. anti-Reformation movement. Yeah, I was going to ask you earlier, and it... Um, about population at the time, so you had you obviously had all these upper class Catholics, mostly upper class, I presume. Mm. Um, now I'm just trying to think. So most of the Irish, like you know, that you're some of them you've, you're descended from, came over to the northwest of England, didn't they? But that was later, after the Industrial Revolution, probably. Yeah. So what was the population like in terms of? sort of everyday Catholics, I mean, what in proportion to the Protestant at that time? A minority, very much a minority. Oh, it was a very small minority. Well, I've heard numbers of the number of recusants being around 5,000 in the country. Yeah, that's not a lot. But these are the hardliners, the people who refuse to obey the laws of going to church. On top of them, you have the church papists as they were called, yes, who were yeah. Catholic in the hearts, but they sort of went along yeah. for an easy life. <laughs> the, the cloth is. The cloth is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so all, overall yeah. numbers, I think it's hard for them to even get 
sort of good estimates, isn't it? Probably it could be ten thousand or something. Yeah. Maybe, but it's definitely yeah. a minority. Yeah, so they were never really going to maintain power on that. No, no. And this is only England as well. I mean, the situation is different in Scotland. You know, it's, you know, Scotland's much more Catholic at this point. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but um, James, although he, 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 he he unites the crowns of the two countries, they still remain separate kingdoms. So as, as we said earlier, James, the sixth of Scotland comes down to become James the first of England yes. and unites yeah. the two crowns. But the two right. separate kingdoms with separate laws, separate parliaments, we've got to wait another hundred years for the act of union right. to, to actually create sort of Great Britain as we recognise it today, where yes. everything is yeah. united. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, James did try and do it in his reign. He tried to unite England and Scotland yeah. Whole yeah. Set, wholesale. But uh, yeah, just, yeah. there wasn't the support there. No. It, it, there were several more Jacobite rebellions and Bonnie Prince yeah. Charlie to come and all yeah. that stuff and the Battle of Culloden yeah. and yeah. all the rest I mean, of it. it when, when you look back at the the people that, you know, the Scots have produced um, that have done so much for the world, I mean, incredible things, you know. And not just for Scots, I mean, we, English did it as well. And the Cornish did a lot. I mean, the Cornish yeah. did loads. They, they went all over the world. Mm. Sort of, you know, with their mining and their, their skills and so on. Um, but just for such a tiny country to have such a huge influence, you know, it's fantastic. And, and the Scots, you know, they, as you know, they went all over the place. It's just a, the Cornish did that as well, but they're lesser known because there's far fewer of them. Yeah. But, um, you know, engineering and so on, it's fantastic stuff everywhere. Australia. America, you name it, you know, they've been all over. I wonder, I wonder how much of that you can put down to the Royal Society when that was formed shortly after this period. I don't know. How, explain yeah. that one. I don't know. That. Oh, it's, it's something I was researching earlier in the year, or maybe it was last year. I can't remember. But yeah, the Royal Society is sort of a, a couple of decades after this. Right. It sort of really sort of starts around the sixteen twenties. And then it gets its royal, royal charter from Charles I around 1650, 1660, something like that. And this right. is where, like, Christopher Wren and Boyle and these sort of... Well, it's, it's the first sort of scientific society. Oh, right, right. And it, it was sold to Charles I from a technological point of view. We get all these people together. It's shortly after the re- restoration of the monarchy right. and Charles II. Right. And it was sold to him, like, we'll get all these people together. We've got all some... All these really bright people together, yeah. Yeah, and sort of yeah. What, look at how we can improve the Navy. Yes. Seagoing see go, see technology. We want to solve the problem of longitude. Christopher M was working on that. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, he uh, St. Paul's Cathedral as well, didn't he? Yeah, well, he, he pretty much rebuilt London after the Great Fire. Oh, uh, right, right. He, he played a big part in that, didn't he? Yeah, he, he did a yeah. lot of the architecture for that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's, yeah, because uh, that wasn't that long afterwards, was it? Really, no. a few de- few decades. Yeah, it's a, such a fascinating period. You've got the Black Death going yeah. on. Yeah, you've, you've got the Civil War. You've got the Stuart Restoration. You've got the Royal Society yeah. and Freemasonry. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, Freemasonry and the Royal Society are very closely tied. Okay, and. Uh, 
through Robert Murray. So Robert Murray, he's the guy who was sort of the brains behind founding the Royal Society, and right. uh, and he was a Freemason. Um, he got Charles II, the, the rest restored king, into Freemasonry. It's very interesting history, yeah. and you know to couple that with Francis Bacon, Shakespeare. Yeah. And you know uh, you get, you've got the Shakespeare authorship question at this period as well. Yeah, what was this guy who supposedly? What was his name? The other guy who supposedly wrote all the books for Shakespeare. There's a couple. There's a couple yeah, of candidates. So right. I mean, most people just assume that the guy on the picture, that guy from Stratford, wrote Shakespeare. Mm. But if you, it doesn't take much textual, literally literal analysis. When you, if you read Shakespeare, to know that the author, he had to know ancient Greek, he had to know Latin, he had to know Roman history, Greek history, mythology, agriculture, architecture, classical history. Mm. Whoever wrote that was supremely well educated, right? In all aspects. And what was what was Shakespeare's background? We've got what three signatures. Right. That's it. Some they, they reckon he was an actor. There's mm. there's no contemporary evidence that he wrote any of it. <laughs> um on his daughter's yeah. on his daughter do- I think it's his daughter's marriage certificate, she signs her name with an X. So she's illiterate. Mm. So you're telling me the guy who wrote all those wouldn't plays have, Yeah, wouldn't have trained his daughter. Had this help. vast knowledge of Yeah. Not just I mean an absolute genius, and he didn't bother to teach his children to read or write? Doesn't make sense. So, it? I mean, that's the first step. The first step in, in this rabbit hole is... Yeah, I've never been down that one yet. Yeah, the first step is, you know, what's the evidence that the guy from Stratford wrote it, and it's slim pickings. Right. So then you get onto the candidates. Uh, some say Francis Bacon. Right. There was somebody, Christopher something, wasn't there? Christopher something. Edward de Vere. Right. Edward de Vere is a good candidate. He was known as a playwright, and he was known to write anonymously as well. And he has the educational background. Um, right. Francis right. Bacon is another good candidate. He is a genius to start with. He has the intellectual capacity and the education. Um, the one thing that hangs me back from jumping in the bacon camp is he's already such a prolific guy in his writing and stuff. And so to have the time physically and mentally to write all those plays as well, right. that's something that sort of goes, sort of sways me maybe against bacon. But I don't know. We don't know. But, I mean, the first step is to say, well, it wasn't that guy from who, Stratford. Who, who, who it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's growing. It's grow, It's been bubbling on. People have been arguing this for 200 years or more. Oh, right. I, didn't, about I who, thought it was a fairly recent thing. No, there's, there's, there's books yeah. from the 1800s questioning Clearly, the, uh, yeah. the authorship yeah. of Shakespeare. Right. So, yeah, it's one of those interesting rabbit holes to go down in fact yeah. um we did an episode with robert Fred- frederick and uh, he does a podcast called the hidden life is best uh, um so if you want to learn about possibly uh, francis bacon being the, the shakespeare author uh, i'd right. recommend his podcast and when he came okay. on our show as well 
can't remember yeah. what number of episode it was, but we, we went down the rabbit hole with him on, on Francis Bacon right, being right. the author. But. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Mm. Yeah. Oh, one, one other thing, getting back to the old uh, bonfire night. As you know, in the in the set well, in the seventies, we had all this, the the backyard back garden bonfires, and then the the establishment started to sort of dissuade us from having these fires in the garden. They used the old safety yeah. thing, as now this could be. I mean, it, yes, it, they were dangerous for some people, um, but yeah, they used the safety uh, angle, and they gradually sort of pushed over to these bigger sort of village displays and so on, which of course then had to get insurance. And then mm. nowadays, supposedly the insurance is so high that people just don't bother a lot of the time. Mm. But getting back to when this happened, I think it was early seventies when probably they gradually started sort of dissuading us from using our gardens. I mean, they couldn't, outright stop us but there was enough discouragement out there that people did stop right. at that time i mean i i, I can't remember seeing too many bonfire parties in gardens after the late 70s i'd say mm. um and i wondered about that because if you take it to the early 70s when i think this movement was coming about what what did we do in the early 70s the very early 70s as a country what did we join <laughs> have you it's thought a, about that is this the common market yeah well it used to yeah it was called common market then wasn't it i think so and i and i wondered about that because you, you earlier on you mentioned um you know france and spain are basically catholic countries um I'm not sure whether Spain were a member in 71. I think it was 71 we joined, wasn't it? And I did wonder whether there'd been some sort of backroom discussions. And they sort of said, well, you know, you can join us, but there's a few things you're going to have to stop. <laughs> and wow. one of them was burning Catholic martyrs. Is there, is there anything in that? Do you know... I the don't kept know. Quiet, if that's the case, it, it, it never. I never ever saw anything like that. But it just made me wonder. It's an interesting question. I would say because it, it is a bit. Um, how can I put it? Insensitive. Very, yeah, insensitive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, um, the Spanish king at the time denounced the plot right. publicly. Right. Um, I think he called them like wild Protestants, actually. The plotters. Really? Yeah. Yeah, they didn't want anything to do with it. Oh, it's nothing to do with us. Yeah, they're Protestants doing that. It's, it's a false flag. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? Hey, yeah. You know, there is theories that it was a essentially a false flag and that Cecil was in on and the plot just, from the beginning. Right, and then they just did these poor buggers in. Just for the PR, the political capital. Yeah. Extract some more fines, some more land. That's scary for. Yeah, it's not something yeah. I've really looked at. There's probably not much hard evidence for it, but you wouldn't expect them to keep that sort of evidence, would you, if that's what no, they were doing? No, that's right. No, because it is yeah, kind yeah. of it's kind of a bit Hollywood, isn't it, the way the plot ends with him being captured yeah. you know yeah. literally hours before a world changing event would take place you know but mm. yeah, yeah so yeah. i mean yeah the, the 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 spanish denounced the attacks but 
I don't know. Would the Europeans in the seventies would they would they be that bothered about? Mm, I, don't I don't know. know. I mean, it's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? Yeah, I, I I don't think. I mean, but to an outsider, again, like we said right at the start of this discussion, to an outsider, they would see it as a possibly they'd see it as an anti-Catholic thing. Mm. Um, whereas we know, growing up as kids. You know, my parents had no idea about any of it. Well, my dad would have done. Mm. But there was never any religious thing. I mean, my, my own dad wasn't religious. Um, it was just a good night out. Yeah. And um, happy memories, really. I mean, I, to me, it's an act of terrorism. It's religiously right. motivated mass slaughter. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we worry about, well, you know, worry, but we, we look at the, the punishments that were meted out and we go, oh, that's barbaric. Mm. But like you say, what they intended to do would have probably killed a lot more people. Well, you know, a not, uh, sounds horrible to say this, not that many Catholics were killed during these persecutions. Oh, right. So I've heard, I think, estimates that maybe... 200 were killed during Elizabeth's reign. It's a long reign, 45 years. Yeah. That 200 uh, recusants were or mainly priests, mainly the actual priests that they caught. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's a hard thing to argue against because I'm all for tolerance, you know, religious tolerance and freedom of thought and oh, expression yeah. and speech. So, I don't, right. you know, I don't like any of it. I'm not trying to excuse any of it or, or anything like that. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know about the European question. No, I no, wonder. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it's true. I'm just no, saying it's, just, I'm, a it, it's just it's just a thinking point, isn't it? It's a like, thought experiment, isn't it? It's just funny how it did coincide. Mm. I think it did coincide. I think it was. Um, I'd have to check again, but I think it was '71 that we joined. Right. Um, actually, I, I can. I've got sort of memories of that time because I was uh, ten, coming on eleven. And we used to holiday in the Isle of Wight mm. on on the, the, the back side of the Isle of Wight, a place called Near Cows. And from there, you could watch the, the yacht. We used to watch these yachts going through the, the Solent. You know, the little stretch of sea between the mainland and the Isle. Absolutely. Yeah. And there was a, a yacht we used to see regularly, which was Morning Cloud, which was Ted Heath's yacht. Oh, and he was—he was the main guy that got us into it. Am I right in thinking that we joined, and then it was a year later or something where they had the referendum? I—I I don't know. That. I don't know. I seem to think um, that we joined the market and then had yeah, the referendum after to yeah. rubber stamp it. Yeah. All, all I know from, like, looking back at it now, I know at the time the average punter in the street just thought it was a business club where businesses could trade with each other and so on. I mean, I, I've got memories of pre-71 being a little boy when in, in in the shopping cart, you know, your mum would get like New Zealand lamb and South African whatever. And so we were trading with these other countries, Canada probably. So we, we were trading with all these sort of long-distance countries mostly. And 
then it all changed and we we were told you've got to deal with this you know so we started getting stuff from germany and france and so on which is good but but we never really saw the rest of it after that um and i know that it was supposed to be a business club for like helping trade mm. and then gradually and i i believe this was the the original purpose absolutely yeah it, yeah, it was planned that we were going to be part of this big super state, you know. Yeah, it was sold. So, it was uh, sold as an economic, yes, agreement, which yeah. I think most people won't have a problem with. I think most no, people want right. free trade. Free, right. free trade sounds like a good idea. Yeah, but this uh, morphed into a, a political union. Yes, and I think that's where we went wrong. <laughs> and it's it's morphed into a monetary yeah. union, and we had the euro. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. A, a fis, yeah. You know, a monetary fiscal union, and you know, uh, yeah. Obviously, people are a bit sort of uncomfortable with that. My my saying is like, I want my politicians. The furthest I want my politician away is at the end of my arm, so that I can <laughs> wring their neck when they get it wrong. <laughs> You know, the last thing, it's bad enough that our our politicians are in London, in the London bubble, never mind in another right. country, you know, making decisions yeah. for us. Yeah. I'm, I'm all sort of, sort of for local stuff and local responsibility and decision making. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I've, I've sort of come around to that way of thinking sort of in, in later life, but um, I used to be very much the other way. But I, I mean, people have this opinion that if you're not sort of pro- EU or whatever you you must be some sort of you know you must be some sort of right wing nutter or you must be you must hate foreigners or something it's an absolute bull. Were, were you in it's were you like, in the country you know, when were you in the country when the referendum campaign was happening in 2016 was it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I heard it all the time in the media, like uh, in the aftermath. You know, people who voted leave were yeah. typically oh, uneducated. Oh, it's just absolute sort of just ignorant tropes, you know. Yeah, yeah, That's just crazy. People, uh, people seem to think that people will just be fooled by some numbers on the side of a bus, and that'll be yeah. enough to sway the vote. And uh, yeah, I mean, ah, it's one of them. I'm sure. There, I'm sure there are people who just well, we know there are people who just follow the crowd anyway. Mm. But um, I, I, I don't I don't know what to say about that. It's just like one person can't change it. You can only you just put up with whatever it is and make the best of it. Absolutely, you know. So we're here for a good time, not a long time. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. So have have we covered the the? Oh, I tell you what, we didn't mention. Oh. Did you read that piece? Did you listen to that piece about the Guildford guy riots? I did, yeah. I was. Comp- I, I knew nothing about this. No, and a lot of people don't. I, I didn't know until, well, I don't know, five, six years ago. I just stumbled upon it, and I thought, well, I should know that. I grew up in the town. <laughs> Why didn't I know? So what's, what and, was the story with nobody, this? My, my friend I was chatting to the other day um, in Ireland, who is from my town in England, um, he had no idea. He had no idea about it either. So, do you want me to give you a quick rundown of a story? Absolutely, yeah. So have you, have you got time? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Okay. So let me just remember now. So 
after after the you know the, the supposed the whole idea of bonfires and that came out of the fact that after this plot was foiled, people supposedly lit all these bonfires and celebration, and then this sort of you had the, the acts of parliament and so on, sort of like encouraging the celebration of it as the decades went on, and then by the time we get to so it's a tradition that had been well established. By the time you get to the 1820s, Guildford, which is like an hour south of London, for anyone who doesn't know, they were starting to have these annual guy riots. And basically it was this complete mayhem where all the local villages, and I, I was raised in one of those villages, so I'm quite proud of this. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're very sort of quiet little country villages now, you know. Mm. Um, all of the local villagers used to congregate on the edge of the town and they would, a lot of them would be drinking. And it was just like one night a year when they could go crazy, do whatever they wanted to within, you know, maybe not within reason. And they could sort of just the next day, it'd all be back to normal, you know, after the hangover had gone. And, um, they would congregate and they would do this thing where they did this um, like um, uh, like a banshee wail almost from the edge of a town. And that was like a warning to all in the town, like to, you know, lock up your daughters and whatever, you know. And they would go in and they would, they would have different groups of people who were all like just out for a good night out, you know, but, they, it was just like a Friday night in, I don't know, <laughs> some of the seedier parts of London a few years ago. And um, they would go in and they would take doors off of people's front front doors. They'd rip a door off. And they would sometimes go in and smash a place up, smash the furniture up, bring it out in the street, in the high street, which is on a hill, beautiful old hill, you know, the cobbled high street. It's still, it's still cobbled. They would build huge bonfires at the top of a hill. And people from all around would be coming with their doors and gates, garden gates, um, people's belongings, as I say, chuck it all on and they'd have a big fire. The locals wouldn't challenge them because there were too many of them. And some of the locals actually supported them. They would sort of cheer them on. They probably thought it would save them from having their houses, mm, maybe. Yeah. And old grudges would be you know sorted out Settled, yeah. like yeah magistrates houses would be burnt to the ground so it's like it's like real riots going on and then now i'm trying to work this out 18 when did when did robert peel when did the peelers begin oh a good question i'm i think it's before uh, after that but i might be wrong yeah that's that's what makes me wonder because because this they, isn't long after the napoleonic wars yeah so they they said that um, a policeman was well. There's a couple of things about policemen. A policeman tried to stop it, and he was chucked on the fire. He he survived his burns and survived. And another one was killed. Um, another one was beaten, just beaten to death. Oh God. Um, I'm just trying to think. So so Robert Peel he started off a police force in England in I don't know. I'd have to check that. But they say that policemen were so whether they were real policemen or whether they were just paid like sheriffs or something? Yeah, something like that. It could be. I'd have to look at the dates. Um 
but anyway, it got from the 1820s to the 1860s. It it really hit the peak in 1860-ish. And that's when this other copper was actually killed, a policeman for anyone who doesn't know what copper is. Um, and they start in the last years when they sort of put the lid on it, mm. they would send the army down from London and in preparation like a few days before, yeah. and they would arm the local police with cutlasses and they basically put these riots down and, you know, it, they just ended because they... <laughs> Well, too many people were getting hurt, you know. Do you know, this fits in because I've just Googled it and Robert Peel formed right. the Metropolitan Police in September right. 1829. Wow. So that yes. ties in, doesn't it? It's maybe a so reaction that, to this. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But supposedly they never they never came out in numbers like you'd see now if there's a riot. There'd be loads of them. Mm. It was supposedly just the odd one that went out and did his job. Wow. So, uh, yeah, that was going on. The Guildford Guy riots, we call them. And when did it end? Did they know when it started yeah, happening? Did I, it just I, fizzle out or did the police it, put it, it down or what? Yeah, the, the police put it down, but it's... It, oh, well, the army put it down, really. The army. The eight, the eight, well, both, really. But the 1860s, I haven't got a specific day, but it was, like, in the 1860s. Wow. So that's not really that, you know, when you think about it, that's not that, you know, it's not that long ago, really. I mean, <laughs> it's like, if you think of like um, the First World War was like, what, 1914? So it's not that long before that. 50 years. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird how that escaped me. Somebody who was born there, weird. no one ever used to talk about that. And it's only in recent years that you see it in all the Guildford newspapers. They they all talk about it now. Really? Yeah. On so like, around this time of year, they bring up the the sort of history of it, do they? Yeah, yeah. It always comes up. Yeah, right. there's always a, there's always a piece on it in the last sort of, ten years or so. And I wonder so why it, wonder why it didn't catch on. <laughs> why is it just <laughs> Guildford? You know. Well, yeah. Why Guildford? I mean, if you if you know Guildford now. I mean, Guildford now so is a very, very affluent town. It's like, it, it's a strange, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful Surrey town in amongst all the hills, um, beautiful countryside. Mostly, if you if you walk around some parts of Guildford, and I used to on the way home from the pub to go back to my village, I would walk past these properties. Like, I, I knew all the little shortcuts across the hills and stuff. And I sort of cut up some posh road and there's a little footpath. And if you cut across someone's garden, it would take you into a field, which would take you to a footpath, which would, you know, get back to my village. <laughs> yeah. And um, this was a regular thing when we were growing up and going into the town, you know. You'd, you'd never get a bus home. No. There weren't any buses at that time of night. So you just walked home. And, um, and I used to walk past these properties and think to myself, well, what do these people do for a living that they can afford these places? I mean, it wasn't just like a little one road of them. We're talking about huge areas where they all had massive, beautiful houses, like brick built. Like some of them were like, you know, any, any era really, like 1920s, 1900s, a bit before that, some of them. Just beautiful houses, great big gardens trees you know real luxurious places mm. and if it had just been a few 
like in most towns, there's, there's like an area, oh, that's the posh people there, you know. Guildford is just covered in it. But it also had council estates, like, dotted around where where they were the opposite. They were, like, really tough neighbourhoods that you, you didn't want to be caught there if you weren't from those estates. Yeah. I mean, I, I know of a, uh, an example of that. Uh, I, I mixed in both circles because I was a choir boy. <laughs> right. So uh, most of the most of the um, so I came from a council estate, but I was in the choir. So some of these lads that I mixed with, they're good lads. They were posh kids, you know. Their dads were solicitors and bank managers and all these sort of jobs. And I remember one of them came up to visit me on my estate, and I, I wasn't even on a rough estate. I was on an estate, but it was a nice one. And he came to visit me on his bicycle, like a brand new. Do you remember the drop handlebars, derailleur gears and all mm. that? And it was brand new. And he came up the road and some lads on my street who knew me basically stopped him. And they said, where do you think you're going? And he, but you don't live up here. <laughs> and he sort of said, well, I'm going to see my mate. Who's your mate? And they were like giving him a third degree, back to the third degree again. They <laughs> said, well, who's your mate? And they said, well, Mark Wyatt. And he said, well, well, you can't be one of his mates. You're a posh kid or something, you know, words yeah. to that effect. He said, he said, oh, I know him, I know him. Anyway, they, they, they didn't rough him up too much, but they, do you remember kids used to wear cycle clips? Mm. <laughs> they took his cycle clips and they broke them. <laughs> I, th- I, think, I think they gave him a nosebleed or something. It wasn't terrible. <laughs> and, and he came up and he never came back up there again. Not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what it used to be like. You know, it was like tribal. Yeah. Yeah, class warfare. Yeah. But when I went on to their estates, they never treated me like that. So yeah. that's the way I, that's the way I live. I think, yeah, live and let live. Yeah. You yeah. know? I agree. <laughs> oh, well. That was probably down to my mother, though, because she used to make us speak properly. Oh, did, did you go for elocution lessons? Oh, she, she, now, even saying this, saying what I'm going to say, we'll give it away because I used to, I used to get threatened, right? <laughs> See, I, ca- I can't say, I can't say TH. I never have been able to. Right. It's just impossible for me to say it. And it used to drive my mum crazy. She used to say, Speak properly, say it properly, and I, I just couldn't. I couldn't get my lips and my tongue around it. Yeah. I just can't. Uh, and if you notice, Cockneys, Londoners generally, they don't. They pronounce it with an F. Yeah, it's just the way they do it. And I, and I'm like them. I'm more like them than I am like a Surrey boy. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, she used to try to get me. She used to say, I'm going to send you to speech elocution lessons. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. Are you threatening me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's one of the wonderful things about our country is the di- diversity of accents. It astonishes oh, I it. me. I love it. And that's one of the reasons why, if you go back to that EU discussion, that's one of the reasons why I loved it. I like, I think each country, if we get sort of sucked into this sort of um, homogenous sort of, you know, where everyone sounds the same, everyone's, you know, 
doing the same syllabus and all of us, and, and we'll all be the same. And we'll be, but I, I think our strength is in our uniqueness. Like, yeah. we're all different. Yeah. And I love it. I've, I mean, I've moved around, you know, England. I've, I've lived in the Northeast. I, so I, I was mixing with Geordies. Why, eh? And they were fantastic. I mean, really great lads. Yeah. And uh, then I was in Cornwall for a long time, and I'm, I'll be back in Cornwall soon at some point. Um, and again, they're different, you know. I, I think of all of them, and, and Surrey was great, of course, as well, prom, but uh, uh, it's a job to hold one against the other. I think they're all great in their own way, you see, so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my brother lives up your way. Oh, does he? So, Near the wall, the ice wall? Yeah, he lives in uh, Leyland. Oh, crikey, that's a hop, skip and a jump. Is it? <laughs> yeah, it's like 10 miles, 15 miles from me. Oh, right, right. Yeah, Leyland. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's been up there a long South time South of the water, we say. Oh, is it? South of the Ribble. Yeah, he the loves River it. Ribble. I mean, I, I see all, you know, he, he loves the countryside and the canals and all that sort of stuff, you know. Mm. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, Mark, we've done two hours already, nearly. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm waffling on now. It's all right. I, I think we exhausted the uh, bonfire thing. I think we covered just about everything, didn't we? Yeah, right? everything important, I think. Yeah. If we missed out, so, let, let us know in the comments. No, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Smash that like button. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fat lot of good you two are. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs>